And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 101 today. Uh, We're joined by Dr. Michael Masters, who is the author of Identified Flying Objects. Uh, Dr. Masters is the professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech University, and uh, it's going to be a pleasure to speak with him about the subject. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Um, So I read your book a couple months ago, and I really enjoyed it. I don't think there's enough academic um, inquiries into this subject, whether it be time travel uh, aliens in general, you know, they're SETI and stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's pretty pessimistic. Um, but yeah. it was, it was good to hear your views on it. And it's something that I've tossed around before, but never as obviously as in depth as you've taken it. So, um, why don't you give us a little bit of background? I know you start your book talking about overhearing a, a conversation with your, uh, parents talking about how your father, I believe had a, had a sighting of some sort. Yeah, um, it was actually before I was born, but he saw kind of your your stereotypical UFO, um, nighttime lights that moved erratically and did things that no modern human technology would be capable of doing. And um, yeah, I was telling that story and I overheard it at a young age and it really piqued my interest in the subject and um just decided to, to look into it in a lot more depth over the course of the ensuing 30 years of my life, I guess. Absolutely. Um, you also talk about, at a young age, seeing, um, I believe it was Whitley Stryver's communion on, on your bookshelf and just getting, um, seeing that archetypal gray that, that's on the uh, cover. Yeah, that was really impactful as well. Um, I don't, I don't know if the book still has that image on the cover. I think I saw one recently where they had changed it, but um, yeah, it's just your 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 stereotypical average gray alien with the the big head and the big eyes and the small face. And um, yeah, that image was was really important um, for shaping my my conceptualization of this phenomenon and. Uh, it was it was cool. I actually just had a, a brief email conversation with, with Whitley Strieber uh, last week, I think it was. And it was kind of a, a full circle moment where the cover of his book sort of inspired this lifelong pursuit. And uh, and then chatting with the fellow that started that was kind of cool. Yeah, he seems yeah, like it's awesome an... to meet someone that brings out that inspiration for sure. Yeah. yeah he seems was, like an uh, interesting guy as well. Um just from his experience and obviously writing the books and stuff. Yeah, he's got a new book out too. Uh, I think just last week he published it. Right. I forget uh, the title, but yeah, he did. Yeah, just I can't one. remember either. So uh, is he an older gentleman, I take it? Yeah, he's older. Um, yeah, uh, he, he made a comment about that when we were speaking because I told him, or he heard I was eight when I saw that book cover and sort of had this image appear in my head. And I forget how old he said he was when... He wrote the book, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how old he is, but he's definitely um, getting up there in years. I would imagine he's been. Because like when he started probably doing that stuff, it was just a different time altogether. Now it's, you yeah. know, we have people in Air Force pr- 
you know, giving us information and showing us videos and stuff. So, right. Yeah. No, the whole, the phenomenon's changed our perception of it and understanding of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a New York's time, New York times bestseller. So there's, there's clearly, there was interest back then too. We didn't have Twitter and Facebook for people to argue about all the little details, but, um, but it's, he was putting something out early on and you definitely have to commend him for that. Yeah. It's always fascinating, especially that specific story, because I always look into things like, um, I'm sure you're aware of some of the correlations made between sleep paralysis, um, Mm -hmm. and, and what he experienced. And then also, um, this time dilation, which you also talk about in your book, obviously your theories predicated around time. Um, but stuff like that and like stuff John Mack did and all that research, oh, yeah. um, is definitely fascinated me from a consciousness standpoint, but, uh, um, yeah. let's talk a little bit about your theory though. Why don't you give us a premise without ruining too much so people can enjoy your book, but just a little bit of a, pr- <laughs> a premise of, what your theory is and how you arrived at it, that kind of a thing. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's possible to, to give spoilers because um, it's kind of a long yeah, It is a very long uh, book. Very long book that, too. Yeah, it sort of tackles uh, the question from different angles and different disciplines. But, but yeah, the overall idea, uh, like I said, it, it, this thought occurred to me when I was eight, but I've seen lots of other people who have come to the same conclusion uh, based on similar and oftentimes divergent lines of reasoning. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just the simple idea that rather than being from a different planet somewhere else uh, around another star in our universe, um, that they're just us from the future coming back through time to study their own evolutionary past, um, more or less in the same way that I would as a paleoanthropologist if I also had access to backward time travel technology it would allow us to understand far more about our evolutionary past and the evolution of culture and biology and technology and things that we piece together from the fossilized fossilized bones and and teeth of our ancestors and uh, based on the the progress they've made with stone tools and uh, more complex tools over time uh, resulting in where we are now we could have a much clearer picture of how all of those things came to pass. So, so yeah, it looks at it in the context of our continued evolutionary anatomy, uh, the evolution of our culture into the future. And at some point, if we do develop the technology to return to the past, we would expect to see very similar things to what are commonly reported in these close encounters. So um, just kind of ties together the past, present, and presumed future or possible sightings of that future glimpses into what that future might look like if these are indeed our distant human descendants absolutely and it's interesting to think about too so if you look at our evolution from um neanderthal denisovan early uh homo sapiens sapiens uh to where we are now and then you look at if we were to then evolve another million years or whatever i could definitely see how we could start to look like maybe one of these archetypal grays or something that we wouldn't recognize immediately. Yeah. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing to me because the more 
I, I look into specific case studies and um, abduction accounts and other forms of close encounters, the more it just it seems almost obvious. And, and certainly there can be bias in that perspective because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wrote a whole book about it, so I'd be looking for these things in it naturally. But, but just the consistency of reports and how the, the vast majority are described with such human like characteristics, not just physical, but emotional and, and their ability to communicate with us and um, empathy that, that people feel. And it, all of these things would seem to be innately human characteristics that we would expect to have into the future in the same way that we've developed them throughout the past. Um, and then, yeah, the, the form, the, the ubiquity of the big heads and the big eyes and the small faces, uh, the bipedalism, being upright walking, all of those things are quintessential hominin characteristics. And and yeah, I don't, I try not to speculate about what might happen between now and then, whether we'll live in space or underground or mm-hmm. on a different planet or anything, but just looking at those long-term evolutionary changes in the hominin lineage, um, you you would expect to get that same thing that's described in so many of these different accounts. Yeah, in your book, you do a careful job not try not to speculate on things, and even uh, you try and distance yourself from this whole. Because let's face it, most of ufology, most people that are looking into these subjects that are not academics, are purely speculating on most things. We know that there is a phenomena. We know that people see weird saucers, lights, orbs, different things in the sky, um, <clears throat> but there's not really. Um, there's not really a large portion of academia or even a small portion of academia really taking these things seriously. So, um, so-called right. credible sources. Right. Yeah. And I think you it do is. need both. I think speculation you is do. fun and it's good for the public to kind of, you know, uh, toss yeah. around ideas, but you also need people using the scientific method or taking a serious approach to these topics. So I think that that's yeah. one thing that your book has done a great job of is bringing that kind of credibility to this subject. Well, I appreciate that. And that, that was one of the main, um, the main motivations behind it was to bring scientific knowledge into this area where it exists. Um, there are, there are academics who are also doing it, but you're right, it's a small number and it should certainly be more, and especially after um, the Navy acknowledged this phenomenon as being real and uh, the, those videos that were leaked being confirmed as real. So why aren't we? And, and the simple answer is the stigma, um, the pushback whether it be real or imagined. And honestly, a lot of it, I think, is imagined. Um, mm-hmm. There was um, uh, an author named Joan Bird who published a book about Montana UFOs. And we've had a lot of activity up here in Montana. But she came and gave a talk here where I live in Butte. And um, one of her her opening lines was about how you can't you can't research this in academia. You can't be a professor or a respected researcher and, and study this. And I'm sitting in the back looking at four of my academic colleagues who came from the university to watch this. Mm-hmm. And we're all just kind of smiling like, yeah, you, you can actually. I just, right. I got asked, I got asked to teach a class about it next fall in fall oh, wow. 2020, teaching the content of the book, uh, a week by week, chapter by chapter uh, discussion with honor students even. 
Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's a different perception, I think, than what a lot of people have. And I, I mean, I was obviously scared shitless when I decided to publish this thing. I didn't know what the reaction would be, but, um, from, from day one, just had so much support from my academic colleagues and administration and, um, cause, cause yeah, it's not speculative nonsense. It's, it's a, it's something that, that picks apart the phenomenon and looks at it in the context of, of real, um, our, our deep knowledge of our ancestral past. And I think, I think we need to get past that. We need to stop stigmatizing this and, and thinking of it as something that we can't study because that's our jobs. It's our job as scientists to be asking questions and, and tackling things that, that may be on the fringe, they may be stigmatized, but everything was at one point in our history, even the idea exactly. that the earth goes around the sun. Right. That was a heavily stigmatized idea that now is extremely obvious. But yeah, I think in order to move forward and to uh, bring more academic scientists and, and uh, industry as well um, into the conversation that we need to reconceptualize how we think about this and and just get past that that stigma that still lingers for whatever reason yeah it's always fascinated me that science um they fail to to do what i think a lot of older scientists so whether it's during the enlightenment or even pre-socratics which they would think outside the box they would push their thinking pretty hard towards the fringe like you said or the limits um and it seems like lately what what academics and in the science community does is they're at this like slow crawl where they're just going to keep using the scientific method and not really push the fringe or push the boundaries if that makes sense so i don't know how we think we're going to get another einstein or we're going to get another isaac newton or something like that if we just keep this basic crawl going and it's good for technology and advancements and stuff like that but if you look at yeah. the advancements of that what got us here i think some of those older ones are some of the ones that are, are most fundamental and uh part of the foundation of how we got here right no that's that's a really good point and and that slow crawl of progress is sort of an institutional limitation as well because it, it, it's necessary we need this we need to have period view and we need to um, have these little battles about the small things in order to understand the large things but it definitely slows the process down and we'll argue a, a great example is in paleoanthropology trying to really understand um, the different lineages that led up to our own and the different branches you mentioned the Neanderthals and Denisovans as examples um, but there's so much infighting, and and to get it right, people will just sit on new fossils for five, sometimes ten years before they publish anything about it. And oh, wow. and there was just a big row about three years ago um, over the the Homo naledi fossils that came out of the Rising Star Cave in South mm -hmm. Africa because they didn't do that. They didn't do it the way the old traditional. Um, release of this information, the publication of the results and, and the quantitative measurements on the fossils. Um, they just built a team and they did it very quickly, published in, in uh, an open access journal, which is also unheard of. It's usually nature or science. And there's a, there's a paywall there. A lot of people don't have access to that information because 
uh, who's going to subscribe to Nature Science for a couple things you might be interested in. So they they put it out there to the public, and and people just lost their shit over that. They're like, no, this isn't how it's done. You're supposed to guard these and not let anybody see them. And um, so I, I commend them for that. And I think science as a whole could learn something from that, um, and it might help us to move forward and and might even help to um, change our perception about things that have been considered fringe, like the UFO subject. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that can happen with us as, in the same sense that a lot of changes have been taking, in the UF, taking place in the UFO community as well. And, and collectively, I think we could really start to put something good together over time. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the, the new Navy protocols about how they approach these subject matters. And then you had Colonel Fravor's experience and the Tic Tac, the Gimbal, and the Go Fast videos and what he, uh, To the Stars Academy uh, is doing. Now, when you look at all that stuff, but then you hear this week, or was it this week? I think it was this week where the Pentagon came out and said, uh, oh, uh, none of that is legit or we weren't looking into these subject matters. So now they flip-flopped where they came out with a statement saying, yes, we looked into these things. And then they just came out with another statement saying, no, that was a mistake. We're not, we, we weren't doing this kind of stuff. So what do you think uh, about this, this political game that's being played within? Do you think that, um, cause most people would say that it's our technology, um, that's advanced of some sort, whether it's the next level of uh, propulsion or something they figured out, maybe having to do with anti-gravity. It's some advanced thing that we have. Uh, what's your take on that? And do you think the government's playing games or what do you think's going on with that? Well, that's been their modus operandi forever. I mean, really yeah. since day one, um, yeah, Roswell's a great example, and there's been so many others since. But yeah, it's it's they're they're flip flopping, they're confusing people. I assume a lot of it is intentional, mm-hmm. um, guarding secrets, guarding their their pri- their proprietary um, technologies, and and yeah, I mean some of it is almost certainly ours. If Roswell did happen, then we've had almost 70 years to try to figure out at least the basics of the propulsion system, which would seem to be electromagnetic in nature. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we would expect to see UFO-like things that we have produced, and especially in places like Groom Lake and Area 51, where there's been videos showing what looks to be uh, test flights of that technology. I, I think it's going to be a long time before we figure out the the time travel aspects of it, but yeah, I would guess that at least some of them are ours, but what percentage? I don't know. It's probably relatively small mm-hmm. in the context of of just the the number of sightings, the number of interactions. Obviously, an abduction situation isn't us because they are different from us. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I really don't pay much attention to it. I, I think it's cool that certain military organizations are starting to be more forthright but you you would think that it would be sort of a a collaborative effort that the pentagon would be saying the same thing but i I don't know maybe it's the old divide and conquer strategy that they've been using and they they possibly do that to add to the confusion i don't know but regardless i mean yeah two steps forward one step back i think things are still moving in the right direction so um 
Yeah. Do you have any uh, do you have any views on Bob Lazar? Uh he seems like a nice fella. I haven't I haven't met him. Um I, I remember actually as a kid seeing stuff about Bob Lazar, so he's been on my radar for a long time, but <laughs> I have to admit I haven't really delved too deep into any of the books or movies that were were made about him. But yeah, my understanding is there's some controversy about what he knew or did or something. I, I don't. Yeah, I haven't really followed it's, it's it. It's a question because the they he they he says that his education has been erased. He said that he went to school at uh, MIT and I think Cal or something along those lines, and that there's no record. But he claims that they did away with his record after he had a falling out with them. He supposedly worked at a, a secret location at Area 51 called S4. And he has certain aspects of it that he can confirm that people confirm uh, through security and the way that you get there and things like that. Um, mm. And then he talks about working there and how everything was comp- compartmentalized. Um, and he had access to our our technology and let's say otherworldly technology, but nobody understood how it worked. So it's kind of this thing where we have these things, but we don't understand how they work yeah. at all but again there's a lot of people that say he's you know full of shit and then there's other people that say well maybe there's some truth to what he's saying maybe it was all of ours and he just they made it seem like that or um maybe he worked there and had something to do with part of it who knows but a lot yeah. again that's a lot of its speculation and it kind of gets away from um what you're trying to do which is use what what do we know or what do we truly know and apply it to uh, an actual theory having to do with this stuff. So, well, I think it's important too, though, to acknowledge the degree of infighting within the UFO community. Cause that that's also, I mean, if we're talking about limitations to evolving our scientific understanding, I think that's a huge limitation to evolving our understanding of this phenomenon. If we're, constantly just picking fights and arguing about tiny details that don't really matter necessarily. I mean, the validity of someone who's saying these things matters. We should obviously uh, cross-check and look into people's past to make sure they're telling the truth. But but it also seems like just one of many examples of people just throwing punches for no reason. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always been much more on the side of collaboration than competition and conflict. Sure. And, and unfortunately, I see the latter in, uh, on Twitter and Facebook <laughs> and yeah. everywhere. It's just constantly fighting about little things. And, and yeah, the, the speculation is a big problem. But I do feel like that's changing. I mean, in the short time I've been uh, involved in, in this area of study, I mean, it took me seven years to write the book, but I've really only been interacting with people for about the last year. Um, but it, it does seem like there's kind of a divide where there's more, there's there's almost, I guess, younger, many of them seem to be young, people wanting answers, wanting um, not just disclosure, but to really know what this is, who embrace um, scientists and, and, and others who are really trying to tackle these questions. And then there's another side that just wants 
to speculate about whatever and and come up with whatever crazy ideas and and they flock to to lectures of of speakers who are doing that same thing just throwing stuff out there and people latch on to it because they have this this celebrity status Mm -hmm. um and i think that's harmful i think it really hurts our progress and especially if we're going to bring in more people from the general population more scientists outside of this because they see that they see people just throwing crazy ideas and then this like uh, herd of sheep that are just following along blindly without right. asking questions, without demanding answers or any evidence to back up what's being said. They see that and think we're all just a bunch of loons and nobody's actually trying to work on anything. So I think it's going to be really important to 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 try to find ways of holding people accountable, but not just arguing about everything that people say, um, being critical, but still having this collaborative mindset where we're all trying to get to the bottom of this and we're all trying to find answers. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I find the Twitter UFO community is pretty, pretty interesting to follow in terms of all the fighting. <laughs> it's almost like the We've real dabbled ho- in a lot of those communities. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. It's a re- the real housewives of the UFO community. On Twitter. <laughs> yeah. people get, oh, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I do appreciate what you're saying and I think you're right. And I think that, um, some of the, the crazier ideas will be weeded out at some point, uh, by some of the more valid, um, I mean, there's still such a large flat earther community out there. So I don't, I don't yeah. know if facts matter to certain people anymore. It's a they'll, trend they'll thing. It, it, I, I yeah, have a, it is. I have a theory on that. Actually. I, I, my theory is that, in the absence uh, ab, uh, absence of religion, you now have these things trying to fill the void for people. Because people, mm. I think there's something romantic about having hope in something greater or faith in something greater. Uh, I just Absolutely. think it makes for a a, qual- a better quality of life. I talk to, I mean, we've talked to enough people now. Some of the um, uh, people that I would consider that have no belief in anything metaphysical or anything other than this day-to-day consciousness, they're pretty depressing people. And I'm not trying to be mean. It's just they have a pretty glim outlook. I would not like to live my life in that way. So I always hold hope or hold out hope that there's something greater. And there is because we know through science, um, you talk about, you know, Thomas Kuhn and the philosophy of of science and uh, enough evidence bottling up that there's a paradigm shift, which leads to a scientific revolution, we haven't experienced that in a while. I think we're due for one of some some sort of nature. Um, so again, I hold out hope for that kind of stuff. And if you look at the history, what we know today is going to be wrong. Um, 100, 200,000 years from now. Um, so we're just giving it our best shot right now. Um, but do you think that when you look at other academics that talk about, you know, whether it's Sean Carroll or one of these quantum physicists talking about the arrow of time and that time travel's impossible. I don't know if, I th- I'm pretty sure I've heard him say that before. Um, what do you think about that from the stuff that you've studied and the stuff that you looked into? Um, yeah, I think, I, I think there's, it's been presented in a lot of different ways and some are more legitimate than others. Um, time, time itself isn't something we really talk about or even think about too much. And especially the implications of going backward through time. So you get a lot of sort of wild uh, ideas about what might happen. And, and, and it seems to create a number of paradoxes 
And I think that's also a misconception that a lot of people have because really the paradoxes um, tend to arise when backward time travel doesn't follow the physics of it, um, whether you're looking at it through the lens of block time or, or, or quantum mechanics. It's, it seems like there's all kinds of problems, killing your grandfather, that sort of thing, back to the future, disappearing mm-hmm. as your parents aren't getting together. Like It seems paradoxical, but only because they didn't really pay attention to how physicists understand time and what would happen if you go backward in time. So um, one, one show I've, I watched recently, just finished the second season, is called Dark. On um, It's on Netflix. It's a German a German series. Yeah, I but think my they, wife was watching it a little bit. I'll have to check that out. Oh, you should. It's really good. I got a new, new thing to watch today. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. I, I would carve out some time because you can tell that they consulted with with experts uh i'm I'm guessing some some pretty prominent physicists who um have have researched time and backward time travel because the show is the best i've seen it and and you don't see paradox in it because it's all done based on how we would understand these events to actually take place with uh intertemporal interaction and so I, i commend them for that and i think that you know, it's a question we've had for a long time. I'm I'm sure long before writing even what would happen if we visited what came before or went into what's yet to come. Um, and and yeah, I think it's it's an important part of trying to understand this phenomenon, even beyond the the physical traits, the the long term hominin evolutionary trends that I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, there's just a lot of aspects of time and. It, we're, we're undoubtedly going to have to circle the square of quantum gravity and, and meld general relativity with quantum mechanics before we're, we're going to be able to crack that bolt because um, that, that's something that everybody's in agreement just because we don't, we don't understand it well enough yet. But the, the common consensus among physicists is that there's nothing in the laws of physics that prohibit backward time travel. So that makes it seem as though it's something that we will eventually figure out how to do um real quick i'd like to touch on your your earlier comment too about religion i think i think you're definitely onto something there in fact i had to put together some proof points for uh, a production company in new york that wants to turn the book into a documentary series and uh one of one of the things i found is um a poll a ripley's poll uh from i don't remember when it was actually it wasn't too long ago in the last decade i would say that shows that uh, when people are asked which things they believe in the most, ghosts were number one, aliens were two, UFOs were three, and then four and five were angels and God. Mm-hmm. So there has been a shift. And you're right, it, it, it sort of draws people in that are looking for a belief system who maybe don't subscribe to the Judeo-Christian or some other organized religion who still want to believe in something. But, and, and the reason I'm circling back on this is because I think that's one of the biggest problems we face in ufology right now is it's still considered a belief system. Sure. And when people say, do you believe in UFOs? You should say, it doesn't matter what my belief is. I'm, I'm examining this from an evidence-based approach. Um, because Beliefs are fine. Anybody can believe in anything they want. There's a lot of crazy things that people believe. But we should stop treating ufology as uh, a belief and and try to look at it in the context of science and, and what evidence is there 
for this and how can we understand these different aspects of the phenomenon with a scientific approach. So I think it would behoove us to start taking belief out of it and not treating it like a religion. But I think you're definitely onto something there with how it, it fills a void for people who might be more agnostic or atheist that still want to have a belief system. Yeah. And I've, I've even heard of people that used to believe in, let's say, Christianity or um, uh, Judaism or one of the main religions, and then they get on to the UFO train, and it's like that's their new religion too. So I've seen it both ways where people, like you said, are were either atheists or non-believers before, yeah. kind of latch on to that. And then also there's people that transfer their belief into something they feel like is more tangible so uh-huh. um i mean at it's, least with the ufo thing we do have videos we do have tons of personal experiences um as we're religion yeah you could say a lot of the near-death communities had some mm-hmm. sort of spiritual or religious um experience and but it's not as much it, it's not hitting the public like it is with the ufo yeah. stuff it, it's not as tangible it's not as physical right like people can right. can feel things when they're singing in choir or, yeah like you said near-death experiences um and and there very well could be a god or gods or some higher power that we just can't interact with in that way but um but but yeah the, the ufo phenomenon i don't think we can consider people's personal accounts as evidence per se mm-hmm. in the strict sense, but it should definitely be considered. And especially start, when they're so yeah. consistent and there, there's so much commonality among these reports, we should absolutely be paying attention to that. And it, it does separate it from just a religious belief system um, in that sense too, as you mentioned. I am careful what I, what I take in too, because um, there are a lot of compelling things. There's compelling documentaries that are very objective. There are people that talk about the subject that are very objective about it. Um, so I think that you have to go in somewhat skeptical and it's not that I don't want to believe in it. It's that I don't want to get caught up in, um, a lot of the external speculation that doesn't really even mean anything. And then it creates this storyline. And then you have a lot, like you said, Mm -hmm. a lot of people following it and believing in it. And it's because this person's a popular person or, um, whatever the case may be. So I think it's important that when people have platforms that they try and take these things uh, as seriously as possible in the sense that they're they're channeling it through science or at least looking at it uh, objectively with a skeptical mind. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it'll I think we'll we'll move leaps and bounds into the future if that starts to happen. and 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 like I said, I think it is. I think it is actually starting to occur. Um, as I go to conferences, it seems like looking at the trend of speakers over time, um, there's more of a focus at, at most of these conferences, at least on, um, really trying to get answers, um, really trying to figure this out and have a conversation. And there's a, I got invited to give a talk, um, in June, I think it is at the, uh, Southern Coalition of UAP Studies conference, and it's it's all uh, PhDs and, and physicists and engineers, biologists who um, convene to to really try to hash things out to figure out what's going on, and and I think that's that's really healthy. Absolutely. Um, so we joke around, or we've joked around. I have um, that when you, when you see when you okay so. There's different people that within the government, like Maurice brought up Bob Lazar. Um, 
there's people that other people that have mentioned that that they call the entities that are whether the government's actually found them or whether it's them using it misinformation whatever the case may be they call them the kids um, and we joked around that if they are kids in these ufos or let's just say they're tiny beans or whatever the case may be that maybe from a time travel standpoint that maybe we are the history class meaning that maybe they're coming (laughs) back and observing us like we would observe uh an animal in the wild if you will yeah that's really interesting um yeah why not in the same way that i i was saying that we as anthropologists could learn so much um i i can't imagine how those children got selected that must have been a pretty uh a pretty high stakes game they were playing there to be able to get to go back into the past and see that um it almost seems like because of what can happen what could go wrong that they they would try to limit uh, just sending class after class back to different times and especially because it does tend to manifest itself in in the cultural record um prehistorically historically even today. Um, but no, that's a really interesting idea. They're, they're always described as being, not always, but many times they're described as being childlike. Um, I, you know, in the book that I look at that in the context of pedomorphosis and, and trends toward heterochrony and hominin evolution, but I, I really like the the fifth grade class explanation too. <laughs> that. That's, uh, I hadn't heard that before, actually. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, again, it was just us joking. I, I like to put pieces together too. I mean, you could say it's a yeah. little bit of pareidolia of the mind, but still it's, like I right. said, it's fun to, to speculate as it, it is, I'm sure fun for you to take a scientific approach to this because there's not really a path that's been cut out for this kind of stuff. I mean, you have what, uh, Stanton Friedman who recently passed away that kind of took the subject seriously. A lot of people, yeah. uh, revere like Jacques Vallée's work into the subject mm-hmm. and, if you're more of the paranormal side of things, you like what John Keel did. So um, there's a couple different avenues, but in terms of actual hard si- empirical science, there's really not much out there. Um, do you think... And Well, hang on. I'd, I'd like Go. to throw something in, too, because I don't think the phenomenon lends itself to science okay. very easily. And I think that's the limitation. We, you know, we were talking about the stigma, and that's, that's important. Uh, that needs to be considered. But... But there are many aspects of this that make it hard for us as scientists to really um, use the scientific method. And, and this this extra tempestrial model, as I call it, this time travel model, mm-hmm. it is testable. And that's an important aspect of it. So you, you really can't uh, in, investigate a hypothesis unless it's testable and falsifiable. So that, that helps um, in this regard. But the whole idea of space aliens, we can look at, at how life might look on different planets based on their own gravity and, and temperature and chemical composition. Um, but it's harder to really apply that to the UFO question because it's just, it's, there's still many aspects of it that are just slightly out of reach. And I think um, that's something that needs to be acknowledged too. It's, it's hard. It's hard to study this using empirical scientific methods. Oh, I absolutely believe it. And I wonder, too, how does consciousness play into this in terms of... So a lot of your book is predicated on time um, and this idea of time travel. Um, and then you look at things, what what alters time that, that we've experienced? For me, I mean, we're not shy about it. We've talked about it on the show. 
many a times psychedelic use i've had i've used psilocybin a bunch um and I, i'm sorry I, I can't continue this conversation <laughs> i didn't know you guys were a bunch of druggies <laughs> Whoa. But yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Maurice thought you were serious for I a second. I love the tone of his voice. <laughs> I, I got saw... nervous for a minute there. Um, but no, no. It's like we finally did so it. We finally those. made him mad. Yeah, and I'm sure <laughs> with your your um, your work and uh, anthropology, I mean, it, when you look at like Mesoamerican culture, yeah, psychedelics, whether it be ayahuasca or sacred mushroom rituals, are huge. Um, yeah. But my 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 point was. When you're in the psychedelic realm, it seems like time doesn't exist. And what feels like forever was only an hour or two hours. And some people yeah. that smoke DMT say it feels like forever within a 15-minute time span. So yeah. um, you have time dilation there. Um, I've been in the car where there's a deer crossing the road, and I'm approaching it so fast that I have to drive around it that time slows down in that in that instance, whether it's the adrenaline or the... Um, endogenous chemicals in my body taking over, whatever the case may be. And then you also look at gravity um, and time dilation with the atomic clock experiment. And um, uh, I'm sure you talk about that a little bit in your book too. So what, what's your take on that whole time dilation effect in, in terms of how it affects our consciousness or how those two things play off of each other? Um, yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of this research is looking into um, how time is affected by, by gravity and your velocity relative to light. But then also, like you mentioned, our conscious perception of the passage of time, um, which quick public service announcement here. Um, most accidents uh, when you're swerving to, to miss a deer are because you swerve. Mm -hmm. You should just hit the deer. Yeah, no, I, I know it messes yeah. up your car, good, but good you, you get there, you yeah. get dinner, you know, you can go home and eat some back straps. Um, yeah. But if you swerve, you go into a ditch. The one time on I did it. And... Yeah, the one time I did it, it was in the dead of winter. We were driving back from Chicago to Detroit, where we're from. And uh, my wife was sleeping in the car. And the, what happened was I was going to drive through it, but it took two steps forward, giving me enough time to like stay even within the lane, but just like bump, right. a, bump around That's it if good. you. But yeah, anybody that's ever approaching a deer, just run through it. Just, if you can. just hit it. If it's a moose, however, <laughs> do not do yeah, not approach the Montana. moose. Yeah, yeah, those things will take your your face off. Sure. Um, if you yeah, if you drive into them, so yeah, definitely swerve if it's a moose. But everything else, you should just hit. Mm -hmm. It sucks because then you got to do auto body work. But right. Anyhow, I feel like we got off topic here slightly. Um, consciousness. <laughs> yeah. So so you're right. Um, do an LSD, mushrooms, DMT, um, peyote, any of those things that are that have uh, psychedelic qualities, it definitely messes with your perception of time. And, and that, uh, it, in addition to things like uh, approaching animals on the road or just being bored or being really excited about something, it really modifies the way we perceive the passage of time, which indicates that there's some aspect of our brains that impose time on the environment that that makes that makes these things understandable to us. And I talk about something in the book too that I dubbed biorelativity, because you can see this in other animals. They don't perceive time the same rate that we do. Mm -hmm. uh, a fly perceives it very differently than a tortoise. Um, we're probably somewhere in between those, but, but th that 
also indicates that there's something about our brains that impose this linear movement on the environment around us so that we can make sense of it, so we can survive in it, most importantly. Um, but we're constantly interacting with other animals that have other perceptions of time that sometimes are bad for us, sometimes bad for them. Um, but yeah, that's all, it's all almost a separate question, the consciousness aspect of time versus the way in which time works as in Minkowski space time and four dimensional geometric terms. Sure. Um, I'm sure there's some overlap probably on a quantum scale that we don't understand yet, but it would almost seem like they are almost two different aspects of time, how we perceive it versus how it exists in a more tangible form. If, if it does at all, um, it could just be some aspect of these four dimension that, that we, uh, it's all pervasive. It, it's, it's everywhere and, and always has been. And we're just here for a blip of it, trying to make sense of, of this, this universe around us. Um, but yeah, no drugs are definitely helpful for those things. Not, not just for understanding time, but, but consciousness as a whole spirituality. Um, they've psychedelics have been used for, uh, longer than any other drug that I can think of. I think you have evidence of opium about 8,000 years ago, but psychedelics have been used right. for tens of thousands of years. And, and there's I, over like 200 different kinds, I think, too. Right. There's a lot of um, psychoactive and entheogenic compounds out there. Also, too, I just read an article, I think it was a few months ago, about how pre-humans might have cultivated cannabis in the, the Nepalese region of... Uh, 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 Asia up in the mountains there, um, which yeah. would have been conducive towards the um, the climate needed to to grow. So, um, if that's the case, then you can add that to the list too. Um, mm -hmm. But that's again, that's somewhat speculative, and but there's studies surrounding it. But um, when when you talk about these things too, um, people do experience encounters with entities and aliens and stuff when they're on. DMT or I've had weird experiences where I've experienced things on other psychedelics as well. So we had Dr. Andrew Gallimore on who wrote the book Alien Information Theory um, and it's predicated around this idea that when you're in those realms you're, you're in communion or you're communicating with these entities whether it be via quantum entanglement whether it be just a different dimensional plane. Um, maybe mm -hmm. since time is not a factor that the pareidolia that's built into our brain uh, that puts pieces together is is disabled, so we're able to see more. Who knows what the yeah. case may be, but uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think that's a possibility, or do you think that when people experience those things from, you know, you're a biological anthropologist, do you think that that's maybe our subconscious talking to us, or what do you think might be going on there? Do you think it could be an external entity? Um, well, I don't know. I guess... And I know you're not a I psychedelic expert. I just, I was just curious your take on it since uh, I, I did read Timothy Leary's book uh, back in grad school. It certainly doesn't make me an expert, but I, uh, it, it is something I've been fascinated with, and especially in the context of time. Um, I, I have had experiences myself that I feel were very powerful and enlightening, and unfortunately it's hard to bring those back mm -hmm. i've noticed like you just your mind is blown and you have all of the answers to the universe and then you wake up the next morning and it's just poof 
it's all gone. And it's right. tremendously yeah. frustrating when that happens because you remember being enlightened, but you can't remember what it was or or how it really played out specifically. Um, but But when those things happen, I also think it might be different than what happens in these abductee instances and close close contact close encounters where there there is a physical being standing there that's communicating with you and and the most common way in which this happens is through telepathy which indicates that in the future humans are going to evolve our 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 consciousness and the energy associated with our consciousness to an extent that we might be able to communicate without words to just mm. trade ideas and feelings and emotions and and these thoughts uh through thought and not through verbal speech um and if that's the case if we're able to do that um in real time even they can understand what we're saying even though we don't yet have the ability to do that it indicates that they're more in tune with uh just the conscious energy and and things that exist beyond our ability to measure them right now unfortunately um but yeah, maybe maybe it could cross the the time space barrier. Maybe you could have different consciousnesses interacting through time. Um, this is just me speculating. I obviously don't know. But um, if if that trend continues, and if these are future human descendants, their ability to use their minds to communicate in real time, yeah, I would guess maybe maybe that's a possibility. But. Mm. Who knows? I mean, there's so much crazy shit going on in your hmm. brain right. when, when you're eating acid. Yeah, we and, don't really even know what's going on. So. Yeah, yeah. It's there's there's a lot of questions, and and that's another thing that's been stigmatized. We haven't really researched it as much as we should. Um, there's a little bit of a renaissance going on right now with mental there is, health yeah. and, and, and psychedelics yeah, and stuff. Absolutely. It's helped me. I, I mean, I've uh, I, I'm a self. I I have. Um, OCD, and I can we go. I, and I can honestly tell you. I, I mean, I've got it under wraps now but there's been times where i've been in some dark places and one nice psilocybin experience uh, a macro dose reset would would help me reset my mind and pull yeah. me back in the game so Absolutely. i do think there's something to it whether it's just another option on the table in terms of their you know the medicine is is good and uh, yeah. For some people, schizophrenia. I just saw it helps with schizophrenics too. It, it helps. That's the weird thing is it can trigger if you already have pre uh, predisposed to schizophrenia. It can bring it on um, if it's hmm. kind of dormant, but it can also help yeah. people that might have it too. So it's this like double edged sword that you just have to be yeah. careful. Understand your mind. Understand your genetics. I mean, we had been right. experimenting with these things since high school. So. Um, when I had not these, a good idea, we well, don't guys, know. No, no, you we guys we are a bunch of noobs, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, was, it was like fourth, fifth grade. Yeah, um, we just had someone on. He was talking about when he was between twelve or whatever, fifteen or twelve, yeah. and he was finding it out in the cow. It was a part of the where he grew up down in the uh, south. Yeah, what all it the kids grows, did. So. Yeah, grows wild down there. That's true. I mean, its availability definitely impacts when you start. But That's funny. it's yeah. just one of those things where you're right. I think uh, that whether it be the psychedelic stuff, the UFO stuff, there's all these fringe things that aren't really being touched that are, I think, could be a wealth of information. If nothing else, um, I don't know why people aren't looking into these things to debunk them if they are academics, because that's what academics love to do best, right, is to debunk yeah. things or to debunk each other. We've had other scientists 
Kind of. Um, we don't use that word, but, but, but yeah. You know just, what I'm uh, saying? To, I'm, I, I don't like what this person did with this study. I'm going to try and find a better explanation, or I'm going to try and um, outdo them a little bit. There's a little bit of competitiveness. There's a little bit of sure, uh, politics. Sure. There's different things going on. Moving There's parts. a lot of that. Yeah, so, a lot of politics. But uh, so what's what do you think is the most compelling evidence that you found for your theory that that uh, people could hang their hat on, if if you will? Well, I think for me and what I try to really put forward in the book is is looking at our past is just looking at how we got to be the way we are now, um, what factors led up to our modern form, both physically and culturally and technologically, and how if those were to continue in the same way that they have for six, possibly eight million years, um, we, we would expect to have more advanced technology. We would expect to have possibly the ability to travel backward in time. We would expect to have even bigger, rounder neurocrania and larger eyes and smaller teeth, smaller faces, still be upright walking, that trait that defines our hominin lineage, bipedalism. Um, so even without having to necessarily draw from the close encounters in these reports, just through looking at our own evolutionary past, we could see how we would eventually come to look very alien, um, very much like what is reported. Um, so I think, I think for me, it's really just a long-term evolutionary perspective of humans and, and hominin evolution uh, both culturally and biologically. Mm. No, absolutely. I like that. Do you, um, you talk a little bit in your book about um, how, or you actually mentioned it here before, you don't like to speculate whether it's in space or in a different planet or whatever, but I think they've done studies and they found out that you lose bone mass or bone density of some of these astronauts when they're in space. Mm -hmm. Um so it, let's say we do traverse the stars at some point or we do get to Mars or we do start spreading out, whatever the case may be. Um, it would be interesting to see if maybe that helps push that that a little bit further in terms of us looking like that. So maybe that has something to do with, um, I mean, when you go through the stars at, at a rapid rate, if we can figure it out, that that would pretty much be time traveling in the future, right? So. Yeah, it would. Absolutely. Um, on the return trip home, at least. Right. Then we would yeah, be yeah. traveling faster into yeah. the future. But no, it's a, it's a really important question. Like I said, I, I try not to guess because we can't know until they tell us um, what factors led up to their own evolutionary characteristics being expressed. But they would still have quintessential human hominin characteristics that would persist. They would mm -hmm. still have eyes and ears and nose and mouth and hands and feet and whatnot. Um, but then, yeah, there might be individual features that developed a certain way because of uh, environmental changes. And, and the astronauts, the twin study, uh, I think is something Kelly, Mark Kelly, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, astronaut that was in space for a year. There were tremendous changes that took place to his his physical form, his body, because of weightlessness. There was a, a great show called The Expanse yeah. that looks at um, the, this aspect of gravity and how people develop on, on Mars. There's a colony on Mars and the asteroid belt and then here on Earth. And the people from Mars can't even walk on Earth because they've uh, not necessarily evolved, but acclimated to that, mm -hmm. low, yeah, that low gravity environment. So 
Um, it affects our vision. It messes with uh, vision, bone, circulation, blood flow. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely going to be some. But a, a lot of people, especially when the book came out, I was getting emails all the time from people you know, offering their own ideas about how we'd live in space or we'd be on Mars and then this would happen and then that would happen. And, and we, we just can't know those things. Um, I think one of my favorite parts about this model is that it indicates that we will survive regardless. We sure. as a species will exist for tens of thousands, millions of years into the future. Um, there's bound to be a lot of changes to our environment that influence our evolution throughout that time. But just the fact that the, if these are our time traveling descendants, the fact that they exist long into the future, I find to be pretty comforting. Oh, absolutely. And look at how we're even here today. I mean, you had the um, great extinction of the dinosaurs of 65 million years in the Yucatan. Yeah, um, absolutely. You had was uh, Lake Toba uh, in Indonesia, that volcanic super volcano that mm -hmm. they say wiped out most people except for maybe 10,000 people or something ridiculous. And yeah. even it's speculative, but I... I think there's a lot of evidence to support it the younger driest impact theory that would have happened uh at at the end of the last ice age um mm -hmm. so there's all these different things that you know we have all these chips stacked against us from uh yeah. asteroids comets uh, astral bodies different things and then you also have things that could happen cataclysms that could happen on earth but you're right climate change climate change big one. exactly yeah. yeah um so you have all these things stacked against us but um, we, we do tend to figure things out, uh, whether it be in the moment or planning ahead. Um, so I, I, I agree with you. Uh, even if let's say we don't know for sure that they are our descendants, I still have faith in humanity to figure something out, even if it's a small portion of us making it happen. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree. And I, I hope it happens in our lifetime. I hope that we get to the point where, we can know and we're allowed to know. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, and it's possible. I think there's a, a chance that it could actually happen. So Good let, time to be alive. Yeah. Hypothetically, yeah, times. hypothetically, though, if one of we were to, let's say one of these entities came back in a UFO and we were able to communicate with them, do you think that you were mentioning like back to the future and stuff. Do you think that that would influence the future? So let's say this entity came here and then it went back to whatever time period it came from that by coming back and communicating with us would impact it in the future. Or no, do you not think that that's the case? No, it's, it's not. And it's actually just, it's not my opinion on it, but it's, um, a, a, a well understood aspect of backward time travel and what happens. Okay. Um, it's a new timeline or something? No, not at all. That's what a lot of people think, and and obviously that's a possibility. But the right. the most uh, conventional, agreed upon understanding within the field of physics is that you maintain self consistency between the future and the past. So you go into the past, and anything that you were going to do before you left any effect of that had already manif manifested itself before you even left. It's already a part mm -hmm. of that past because it predates you and when you are in the future. Right. Um, and, and a lot of this stems from um, Igor Novikov's work, the Novikov Self-Consistency Principle, and a lot of really influential research that was being done throughout the 70s and 80s with regard to 
uh, backward time travel in both classical uh, physics and also quantum mechanics. But, but it, but it consistently shows that these are non-disruptive events. It's not creating a separate timeline or a split in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics that is a potential outcome. Mm. Um, but when you return to that time in the future, everything's not different. It's exactly the same because anything you were going to do in the past had already manifested itself. It's, um, it's what had, has always already been done essentially. So, so no, you just return to the thing that was always going to be there because it's always been a part of that interconnectedness between these two different parts of time that were always connected um, as a result of your actions traveling into the past. Yeah, that's interesting. What about time dilation in terms of, we, we talked about a little bit earlier, but in terms of gravity. So is it my understanding correct? The more gravity there is, the, the more that time slows down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's equivalent to traveling at a high rate of speed. It, it uh, compresses space-time within that reference frame. And how do you think that um, that would affect human, let's say that we were able to time, time travel or traverse the stars at a high rate of speed and, and get around, do you think that that would affect us biologically in the sense that we would age or something like that a lot quicker? Or how, how do you think that would affect uh, the a human being? Well, your your perception of time and the rate at which you age stays the same within that craft. So within that, your what's known as your localized reference frame, regardless of how fast you're moving or how much gravity you're experiencing, everything moves at the same speed for you. It's mm -hmm. just relative to others back on planet Earth. Um, right, if you're right, sitting next right. to a, a neutron star or you're traveling at a high rate of speed, when you return, they've aged a lot right. relative to you because of the rate of the passage of time in global space time and within your localized reference frame. Um, and and that's, that's a barrier to long distance space travel is even to move at a high rate of speed so that we could, I mean, we can traverse uh, half the galaxy in something like 60 years. I think it's been uh, worked out that, that we could travel tremendous distances at near the speed of light. If that is possible, there's inertial forces that would make that difficult. But if we are able to do that, we could get across the galaxy in something like 60 to 100 years. But at that speed, you come back home in something like 50,000 years has passed and nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to commit to that. But with yeah. time travel technology, it, it should be looked at as something that can help us, um, that can help us explore interstellar space to really travel into the, the vast reaches of space because then we don't have that limitation. As we're coming back and we're blasting through all of these years returning to Earth, um, if we're also able to manipulate space-time in a global sense, we could counteract that. And and so a lot of people that see this as dichotomous with uh, space travel and space aliens, I think they should understand that time travel might be one of the only things that allows us to travel at high rates of speed for extended periods of time without having to say goodbye to our family and friends that we would never see again because they'd be long dead by the time we got back. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Have you looked into, uh, there was one case that kind of made me, when I was reading your book, that I thought of, are you familiar with the Rendlesham Forest incident? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... Good, I wanted to talk to him about that. It's a good one. Jim Penniston 
supposedly touched this craft that landed in off um, in the forest that was near two different uh, U.S. bases that at the time were housing nuclear weapons, I believe, or near a nuclear facility. Uh, but they went in the forest, they checked this thing out, and uh, Peniston touched this, this craft and was instantly flooded with ones and zeros, which later on um, he would have transcribed, and I think some of the phrases were origin year 8100, um, mm-hmm. uh, here for planetary survival, like all these messages to indicate that they were time travelers. So I, I think that he's even mentioned it before that he thought that they were time travelers as well. Um, are you aware of that? And w- if so, what do you think about that? Yeah. Peniston's team tra- time travel for sure. Um, and for very good reason. Um, he, yeah, I, I watched an interview with him recently. Um, we've crossed paths quite a few times over the last few months, but haven't gotten the chance to have a nice. conversation yet, but he's been at, um, the last couple conferences I've given talks at, um, our tables were right next to each other at the MUFON one. I remember, but, nice. uh, still didn't, still didn't get a chance to chat. Um, but yeah, that, that would very much indicate time travel. The fact that this binary code, um, it, gave such specifics too about a specific year and how they were uh doing research into the past i think was one part of that um as it was interpreted by him so uh yeah i I actually learned of that just before publishing the book and managed to get um a couple paragraphs in just as as another way of demonstrating that that there's things that should be considered um, in, in the context of this phenomenon, and especially this extratempestrial model, that, that cases like that should certainly be uh, considered, um, not just because they back up this idea, <laughs> but right. because they're, it's, it's a really powerful um, description of what happened, and it's been uh, corroborated by so many other people, that specific event, in the early 1980s, I think it was. So, right. yeah, no, I find that one to be fascinating. I'm actually, um, I'm giving a talk at Contact in the Desert in May of next year, late May, I think. And one of the, the workshops that I'm doing is to sort of look at some of these different encounters um, and how they might fit or not fit into this extratempestrial model. And and obviously, Peniston's is on that list of ones to discuss because I think it's it's a really, really interesting case study that seems to indicate that they are from the future. Sure. What about yeah, that one in the rules in encounter, which kind of supports the fact too, because I think the people that they ran into were talking about keeping the earth healthy and warning mm-hmm. them about the future or whatever. Yeah, the kids from Rua, one of them mentioned that they got a telepathic message that they should not be so technologed. So I assume that to mean why are we using all this technology or something along those lines? Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, the Rua Zimbabwe one's a fascinating one if you haven't checked that it was out. The, wasn't that the preacher From guy? Matt. No, that one, it's a, it's, it was a group of like 60 school children in Zimbabwe that were outside playing at recess, and they all came in like worried and crying, and they saw something, but there was no teachers out there. Um, but then later on, John Mack, who was the head of psychiatry, at uh, yeah, Har- Harvard. Harvard. Yeah, he came yeah, and, and, and interviewed all of them, and he said, absolutely, these kids experienced something. I don't know what it was, but they all drew yeah. a similar picture as well 
of these two aliens that would circle around this UFO. They were gray-esque. Yeah, and um, but yeah, that's an interesting one to look into for sure because yeah. there might be some some time some time stuff going on there. Uh, I also yeah. wonder what about ancient stuff because there are ancient accounts of people so being so called taken up to into the heavens, and then mm-hmm. when they came back down, everybody they knew were, were dead or deceased or hey that was. 100 years ago or something along those lines have you looked into any of those stories or do you think that they're just all allegories or no i think uh, there might be one in the bible i don't know exactly what part or what but i've I've definitely read uh, some some ancient accounts ezekiel yeah ezekiel's account would seem to describe something very much akin to a, a ufo encounter um that's that's one that's been uh been mentioned quite a few times and uh, having read it i would tend to agree the description seems to be very ufo-ish in nature but no we can learn a lot from from folklore and from origin myths and yeah there's a lot of stories from the past that uh predate writing which makes them prehistoric um that that describe very similar things to what people have been seeing in the historic past and in modern times so if we have the ability to traverse time and to go to different points in the past we would expect um our presence as future humans to be recorded in some form among these past groups and obviously once we had writing and and pictographs and video cameras and things like that it gets easier to do so but um even in the prehistoric past we would absolutely expect for their presence to be acknowledged or or captured in some way with whatever they had whether it be a story or a cave painting or anything like that so so yeah i I certainly don't think they built the pyramids or stonehenge or anything like that but i definitely think they've been observing us yeah we definitely don't believe that either i mean look i've mentioned many times i like watching ancient aliens it's entertaining they do have credible stuff on there sometimes whether it be panspermia or other speculation speculative or or notable biological anthropologists exactly and even yeah and some, some hey. <laughs> uh, oh, what episode what episode are you i mean I've, i'm pretty sure i've seen you but what, what episode are you on no i haven't been on yet um i can't i, I don't think i'm allowed to say to be honest but, okay um i have i have been working with them a little bit more recently and and yeah i, I feel like the show it, it's for entertainment nobody's gonna argue with that but it also is helpful in trying to uh, get at some answers, I guess. Like mm-hmm. there's there's obviously a few too many what ifs followed by something that really can't be backed up by anything. But they, I I definitely applaud them for getting it out there, for getting more people interested in the subject, and for yeah having valid scientific hypotheses addressed and. Um, having notable science scientists contribute. So, yeah, it, it, you could find the good and the bad in anything, but I think on the whole that show and, and others like it are, are doing a, a, a service. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time, how, you know, Graham Hancock. We just had Gregory and, Little on, on our podcast, and he was yeah, pretty cool. much agreed with you to the T that, yeah, you know, there is there is some stuff that's fringe or whatever, but at the same time it brings awareness to a lot of these ancient civilizations. He was, he's more into the ancient civilizations and stuff, so that's yeah. kind of where the route we were going down with him. But Yeah, as part of the that Proof Points document I was mentioning, I looked up the popularity of ancient aliens and uh, Unidentified the first couple of weeks that that aired 
on also the History Channel, I think. And and both yeah. shows were in the top twelve most highly rated programs on TV, like including network and cable. Uh, and Ancient Aliens is always in the top ten week oh, yeah. in and week out. So uh, I mean, if it's on all day, <laughs> I guess it's easier to. <laughs> you definitely have people binge watching it for sure. Yeah. yeah well, that show's been going for what seven? I mean, I remember watching that. At ten least years. seven years ago, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they just years. this year is their ten year anniversary, and and yeah, no, I I, I I'm proud to to work with those guys, and um, I I I don't feel like I sold out or um, said anything I wouldn't have said anywhere else. So I I think yeah, I think the the show is good and it does good things, um, but it also unfortunately does blur the lines between fact and fiction. Um, that that stupid mermaid show was probably one of the worst <laughs> yeah. examples of that on <laughs> Discovery or whatever. Yeah, that yeah, just yeah. pissed me off. Like they're 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 manipulating people. They're they're using people thought that was real and methods. they made it seem yeah. like it was real. Yeah, and and there's one little disclaimer at the beginning of the show, which I don't even think was on there, the first week it aired. Um, but yeah, it, it it confuses people, and there there are a lot of people who don't have the most in-depth knowledge of science and the scientific method who, who fall for that, that, Mm -hmm. that clickbait TV clickbait. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's probably a better word for that, but yeah. And and if it's just for entertainment, great, but acknowledge that and don't try to fool people and and blur the lines between, uh, knowledge and speculation. Uh, uh, that one was kind of irritating, but, but not all of them are like that. No. And I think I talk about ancient aliens is how I found about a Gobekli Tepe. And from there I started getting into a lot of different authors and researchers and whether you like Graham Hancock or don't like him, he puts out a pretty compelling argument for a lot of these timelines being changed a little bit. Um, so again, I love the show. I think it's entertaining. Now, when they get to the point I've mentioned this before, if they just took out the part where they go, um, did aliens build the pyramids and then ancient Mm -hmm. alien theorists say yes, like, or whatever, whatever the term that they, if they just took that out, I think it would be a whole different show, but that's just, it would. And they've lost so many viewers and so much credibility because of that. Um, and, and we, as, as anthropologists, archeologists, um, it, it obviously offends us even more because we can see, this slow, steady progression of technology and, and architectural knowledge and, and very clearly understand how they did it. It's, it's kind of racist to assume that they couldn't have because you know, of, of the time they lived in or the place where they existed. So, so yeah, if they just di- di- divorced themselves from that a little bit more. And, but again, I mean, it, it's not their mission. The mission is entertainment. So if, if people are entertained by that, and you're in the top 10 for ratings week in and week out. Why change? Keep it flowing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, I, I, maybe that's your perspective. I've heard the racist thing. I've heard it from other archaeologists talk about it. There's a pretty vocal woman on Twitter that I had to block just because she's just so crazy about it, calling out the people of ancient aliens that it's one of those things where oh. I think it's just romanticizing the idea. I don't think that there's any malicious... Um, uh, thoughts behind it. I, maybe there are some little subgroups or sub factions that believe that kind of stuff, but I just believe that it's people again, wanting to believe in some higher thing or some higher power. And then it gets conflated into, Oh, you don't think people could have done this? Well, I mean, when you really look into it, 
even the the pyramids of Giza, okay, we know um, it's more likely than not that skilled laborers built it. So you could look at like the farmers during the wet season of the Nile and Bob Breer, who's an Egyptologist, talks about this, how these masons would come there during the wet season when they couldn't grow crops anymore and work uh-huh. on the Great Pyramid. That's a far more likely theory to me than forcing a large group of people that could change their mind and, and overthrow you at any point to force them to do something like that. But that's just my opinion from, from looking into. Yeah. This I, I would like to point out though, that, that whether or not, even if that's not the intent, if it's perceived like that, so ubiquitously throughout the scientific community, it's another one of those things that doesn't do us any justice and helping sure. To bring those people in because they can point to that and say no they all think they built the pyramids they're crazy we shouldn't even interact with these people right when in fact that's not the case like like you just said and like i obviously understand as an archaeologist and anthropologist that that they could have done it they did it we don't need to interject some extraterrestrial idea onto that which just forces us further into the fringe and makes it harder to build this collaboration between the ufo and scientific community absolutely so I, I do think there is the old adage, a few rotten eggs spoil the bunch. I think that that, yeah. that is yeah. kind of the case here, and you're right. I think it's unfortunate, but everybody in this day and age has a knee-jerk reaction to everything. So it's better <laughs> just to tread the waters lightly and kind of right. put your best foot forward, if you will. Um, so where do you go from here? Are you working on another book? You said you're possibly working on some sort of series or where do you think this is, is going? Are you just going to continue to um, further your research into this, the time travel theory or? Yeah, there's uh, quite a few things going on right now. It's um, It's been a lot of fun. I'm still very much continuing with my my. I, academic research. Um, I mean, this is academic too, but I, I, I guess you know what I mean. More right. mainstream. Sure. Um, most of my research has been in vision and the evolution of craniofacial anatomy throughout um, long-term hominin evolution. Um, so in like fact, visual I'm, acuity, that kind of stuff. Yeah, visual acuity and and uh, juvenile juvenile onset myopia, astigmatism, how it interacts with. Um, the brain, the eye, the eye orbit, the ocular fat. Anyhow, um, so I'm still doing that. And and as a professor, we have a lot of other commitments and service and teaching and and research. But this is um, it's it's been a really fun thing to do and talking with people like yourselves and and so many others, giving talks and interviews and things. So so I'm still trying to find that balance between the two and and maintain this area of research as well. Um, and yeah, the, the docu-series is in, um, in production right now and uh, starting to put together some, a, a pretty cool team of people, uh, producers and hosts, pretty, pretty well-known television personalities and things who might, um, who might be involved in it. So, so yeah, that's, cool. that's uh, an ongoing project. And then, um, yeah, like I mentioned, for Contact in the Desert, I'm looking at these different case studies. I thought that might be something to pursue um, over the, the coming year or two as well. Just really trying to break these down and to see how they fit within a number of different interpretations. The the many worlds interpretation, time travel, interdimensionality, right. simulation, uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis. So. To kind of look look at these, because the book, as I mentioned, mostly focuses on 
what we know in astronomy, astrobiology, physics, and anthropology, but and then it ties in the UFO phenomenon. But I think it'd be interesting to kind of flip that and and look at it from the UFO side and bring in science or our understanding of those things sort of in reverse. So that's something I've been tossing around a little bit too, but I don't yeah. know. It's it's fun to do, and I've just been enjoying talking to people about it, and I assume I'll continue to do that. Nice. Yeah, the simulation one's an interesting one, too. We don't have enough time to obviously d- deep dive into that, but it's almost like the simulation, if you were to apply it to this, would have some sort of... Um, some sort of connection to almost like platonic uh, philosophy or like the theory of forms where to have a simulation, you actually have to have some original or some first version to even copy off of. So that's, that's an interesting one for sure. Um, Yeah, no, it is. Um, But I agree. There's, there's definitely some limitations, but we, at this point, there's still so many unanswered questions. We should be considering everything. I think everything exactly. deserves our our acknowledgement and, and criticisms and skepticism, but at least to be considered. Awesome. Well, right let, on. let's wrap this up. Um, it was a pleasure having you on. We'll definitely try and get you on again. And um, there's so much stuff we didn't even get to that we could have gotten to, but. Uh, Check out uh, Dr. Master's book, Identified Flying Objects. You can buy it on Amazon. I have the link down below the video. Uh, do you have a website that you want to plug? Or Yeah, um, I should mention, too, the book's actually on sale for four more days uh, until December 15th. It's 15% off on Amazon. So if Perfect. people are, are interested in, in getting a deal, um, it's it's going on until the 15th and yeah there's more information on my website too uh, which is just an abbreviated version of the title of the book idflyobj.com idflyobj.com and um, I'm posting links and info about upcoming talks and interviews and things on there and there's links to other places you can buy the book on there too it's available on as an audio book and on Google books and Apple books and whatnot. So it's, yeah, it's a good place. There's also a contact page in case people want to get a hold of me about anything. Cool. And, uh, I like how you changed UFO to IFO in your book too. It's a, <laughs> it's a nice one. Um, but yeah, so check out his book for sure. Uh, check out his talks if you're in some of the areas where he's going to be speaking at. And, uh, we look forward to possibly your documentary show coming out. Um, and you can check us out at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive content and uh, audio and check out my, uh, Mike and Maurice And as you can see throughout the video, we are on all social media platforms as well. Uh, Dr. Masters is also on Twitter. If you want to check them out on there. Um, so thank you at, again for coming. Morpho time at Morpho time. Okay. At Morpho time. And uh, that's it. So, Thanks for uh, spending some time with us. We appreciated that. Yeah, yeah thank a, you. It was great talking to you guys. Super enlightening conversation for sure. So we appreciate your time, and uh, you have a good one. All right, you two take care. All right. Cheers. Bye.